0: Hello, I'm John Slade from Campbell to Kell. Welcome to the Digital Housing Maze, an exploration over three episodes of digital within the social housing sector. The format is that we have two panellists, two witnesses and a firm intention to get to the heart of the matter. A digital by default business relates to software and hardware in ways completely different from businesses that have slowly evolved from paper to electronic records. In the commercial world, the businesses such as Blockbuster and BlackBerry that were slow to change turned out to be candlelit businesses unworried by the arrival of electricity. Does the same fate await housing organisations who remain steadfastly non-digital? One reason for inaction in social housing is the shared history of IT implementations. For many years, the sector has been stuck in a cycle of writing big specifications, leading to big procurements, leading to unsatisfactory big bang implementations. With the cycle repeated every five to seven years, how do we disrupt this well-worn cycle? And what have we learnt about our customers, our staff and our organisations during our journey through COVID-19? Have we glimpsed a better way to achieve change? And if we have, how do we hold on to those lessons as the virus recedes and the old ways reassert themselves? Here to discuss these questions and more are Sonia Fursland, who brings wide-ranging experience of life at the social housing coalface, and Nick Salloway, Managing Director of Curious, a man with some clear thoughts on how to treat what ails the sector. Sonia, apart from the obvious benefits for customers, digital can deliver much lower transaction costs. How serious is the sector about efficiency?
1: So I think as a sector, we feel really keenly our responsibility to deliver value for money. And in particular, I think our place in terms of being part of the solution for the housing crisis. So, and, and actually not just building new homes, but actually using the, the resources that we have to invest in our existing homes and communities as well. And I think as a sector, we've woken up to the fact that digital is a way to enable us to do that. But there's no doubting that we are significantly behind the curve in terms of other sectors. I think that, where, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Blockbuster, because clearly there's an organisation that didn't understand its customer base, couldn't read the rooms in terms of the direction of travel. But in housing, actually, we've got a very... Um, static customer base to a larger extent. Demand continues to outstrip um, supply. And so we haven't had that kind of burning platform that has pushed us forward. And we have been really reliant on the relatively few um, big companies out there who deliver management systems. And those systems have not been focused on customer experience. And we have lacked the skills, I think, as a sector within our own organisations to think digitally And to be at the forefront, really, of pushing ahead in terms of that digital agenda, because there is no doubt that actually doing things digitally not only improves our customer experience, but actually it reduces our costs. And that enables us to spend our money more effectively doing the things that we're absolutely committed to.
0: That's great. Thank you. And Nick, from your perspective, what's the biggest barrier that prevents housing organisations from taking the step forward into a more digital world?
2: Yeah, thanks, John. So straight to the easy question. Um, I I think trying to point to any single barrier risks attempting to oversimplify a very complex sector. But I do think the importance of clear leadership um, in digital transformation is often misunderstood or underestimated. Uh, I think several things stand out when people look at why some transformation programs succeed. Uh, while others fail to achieve the desired outcomes. Uh, And I think um, in that leadership and organizational culture are perhaps the most significant drivers of change. Uh, And the ability of the board and and the CFO in particular, I think, to be both the evangelists and architects of wholesale digital change uh, across every aspect of the business is, is arguably the key determinant for success. Uh, And without that strong digital leadership, uh, I think it's inevitable that change will only ever be incremental. uh, uh, And the promises of improved customer experience, greater efficiency through digital transformation are unlikely ever to be realised. So leadership, I think.
0: That's great. Thank you. Time now for our first witness. James Holmes has worked on the modernisation of Greggs and is now working with North P&I, a global marine insurer. James, if culture eats strategy for breakfast, how do you stop old cultures from chewing up new digital strategies?
3: Uh, Thank you very much, John. I think you touched on earlier about the the big ban uh, approach to delivery. I think that's one thing that is definitely I see changing in the the world now. We are moving very much away from these large, very large, high risk uh, transformation programs going live in one go to much smaller, more manageable. Uh, chunks of work. Let me give you an example of that, uh, nothing to do with um, IT. When I was working at Greggs uh, about several years ago, I was asked to open a concept shop uh, for Greggs uh, in, on Gosforth High Street. And as part of that, we went into it with our eyes open, knowing exactly that we, it wasn't all going to work. It was, we weren't at all going to get it absolutely perfectly right first time, but we took what we believed were all the ideas that we wanted to test and trial, And we put them into that one shop of 1,800 shops um, to test the ideas and then learn from that before we then rolled it out. So why do I talk about that? Well, actually, that's quite similar to an agile development uh, or or delivery uh, methodology that I know is used and discussed heavily within the IT world. So this is breaking things down into smaller chunks of manageable change or technology delivery and delivering those on a regular basis. I think the second area that we also just need to, to think a little bit about, and Nick, you touched on it earlier, around around the role of the CFO and, and and culture. It is really important, I think, to understand, the biggest driver is to understand why are we delivering this change. And then most importantly, is that all the peers on the board, everybody on the board is really clear and understands why there's that need to change. And only then should we embark on that journey of change.
2: So that's really interesting, James. I think as technologists, we're familiar with the benefits of agile ways of working. Uh, but I think it's often the case that incumbents are risk averse and, and they definitely prefer um, in, uh, the experience of a the certainty of a fixed price, upfront specification, pro, uh, projects, a big bang release. Uh, and because I think that fit that they like that because it, it fits neatly into their annual planning cycle. So are you saying then that the, the approaches uh, or would you infer from that the approaches to procurement and planning hinder transformation, the ones that we see within more traditional organisations actually hinder digital transformation? And if so, how how should incumbents go about realigning their planning, uh, the capital deployment, service delivery objectives with the kind of fail fast, learn fast processes that are the default method for decision-making that are fa- favoured by agile teams?
3: Yeah, so great question, Nick. I- I- I think let's just if we step back and I use probably my experience when I was uh, working at Greg's uh, where we purchased a a large uh, technology solution uh, multi-year delivery. But what we deliberately did is we deliberately I keep coming back to you, breaking it down into manageable chunks. The procurement process was a very interesting one. You know we start at the beginning. What are we trying to achieve? What are we trying to actually get out of this solution? And then we work with the procurement team who hadn't done this before. So again, this was a big learning curve for them. We had a procurement team that had purchased technology, but not at this size, scale and complexity. But what we decided as a group uh, was to actually break this down again into logical chunks so that we could then manage that through the procurement cycles and also through the uh, overall um, expenses and and capital management uh, process that we had in place at Greg. Now, typically, some of those projects were only two or three months long with short delivery cycles, but some of them were a lot longer. So what we did is we stood back and we tried to lump those together to try and help fit it in with that yearly uh, financial uh, cycle.
2: So are you saying then that the, as well as looking at how the organization transforms its, its operations or its service delivery, that there needs to be, uh, consideration given by the board to transforming the finance function within the business as well, so that um, you know that the, the financial flan- uh, planning process aligns more with the way that technology teams actually operate within the business.
3: I'm not saying that finance needs to change. What I'm saying is I think there needs to be a mutual understanding from both probably the technology teams and the business change teams and the, the finance team as well to get that balance right. That you know, when we set off on this journey, you're not going to have absolute clarity on all the prices. You're going to have some indicative costs. You will broadly understand the, the journey that you're going to go on. But actually, as you go through, and again, I'll come back to this agile way of uh, of, of working, is you start to learn from how you, what you've delivered and how you've delivered it, and you get better and better. My experience, again, coming back to, to, to Greg, is we look, and we, the first couple of transformations, programs that we did or projects that we did were really, really small. first one we did only impacted 17 people in the business um, and we were able to run it alongside existing processes and systems to keep it the, the risk to an absolute minimum. Then moving forward, we gained confidence and we gained clarity around how we approach this technology and business change and we started to make the programs larger and more complex, culminating in some very significant change across all of our 1800 shops. Um, but again, we broke those down into small, manageable chunks.
2: And, and you mentioned the CFO, which are, you know is a really interesting um, point. How well equipped do you think contemporary, you know, many contemporary CFOs are to to deal with this kind of change? I, I think you know what we often see is CFOs asking very deterministic questions. So, how much is something going to cost? How much market share will we capture? know, what's going to happen to margins? But I I think, you know, they increasingly need to learn to ask questions like, what are we going to learn? Um, If I give you this money, what are we going to test? Uh, How are we going to measure whether a month from now the lessons are suggesting that we should spend more money in this area? Do you think there's an issue within organisations, housing associations and other organisations that CFOs are not particularly well equipped to work well in an agile environment?
3: I, I think if we just step back and look at the role of the CFO, I think I think from my view, that role is changing. Uh, we're seeing a lot more, from my experience, the CFO taking on a much more operational role as well. Um, the program that I'm currently working on at the moment, the CFO is the sponsor of that program, has clearly laid out the business case, the benefits, uh, where those benefits will come, uh, and is ultimately uh, accountable for the delivery of, of the business case uh, with um, with support from uh, the remainder of the board, um, that I believe is absolutely pivotal. Their their role as CFO has gives them the opportunity to understand all at high level the processes that are, are working and running uh, within a business that make a business tick. And from that, they can understand at a high level some of the opportunities of where the benefits and the savings can come from, both financially and from a time and resource point of view
1: james I, I'm really interested in what you were saying essentially at the, at the start of your pitch around um, culture um, and I feel that that's a particularly live issue for us within the the housing sector and particularly I think it around risk so I think one of the reasons why we tend to go for big bang and um, full IT overhaul bring in a brand new system um, it is because actually we're we're quite a complex business and when we get it wrong um, the the potential for, for harm is, is significant. You know, we, we manage compliance risk, which is something we take very seriously and um, is something that we're very always very keen to get right. So part of the challenge we have as well around the existing culture is that we're already managing risks in terms of having multiple systems. And so the idea that we can get one system in that can integrate, that can bring everything together, that we can train our, our colleagues on, Um, is is incredibly attractive actually because it feels more risk averse than what you're talking about essentially which is developing something brand new trying it out and all that that entails and and I guess for for our areas of risk as the is how do you feel as a sector in terms of the culture that we that we are sufficiently bold to
3: take some of those risks I think we need to just step back and look at what is happening elsewhere, uh, outside, outside your industry, uh, so outside the, the housing industry, so we can understand the challenge we have there. We, in the commercial world, we're, there's, a, there's a big challenge all the time around, around money, around efficiency, uh, and, and better ways of working. So actually, the business is starting to come to us and say, actually, we want this new technology to help us be more efficient. Or actually, we've got all of these great people doing rather some rather mundane tasks, and actually, we want to free up that resource to be able to get them to do the more challenging and the more difficult things. So those are some of the areas that I would I would certainly look at. I think the cultural one is always a good one. Um, it, it's got to start at the top. It always has to start at the top because we need to make sure that the board are absolutely brought into fully understand why. We want to change and why does the need to change? We step back and I ask a simple question. If we don't change, what impact is that going to have on our business? Is that holding us back? What are our competition doing? What, is every, what are other people doing? Is there efficiencies being gained here? Is there efficiencies being gained there? I'm not talking about uh, you being right at the, at the front end and leading on the bleeding edge of technology using the latest technology and all the toys. All I'm talking about is I believe that A business nowadays needs to have technology that's underpinning this business change. And as we mature and continue to grow in this very fast and dynamic world, I believe that all of us, all businesses will need to change and react and it become quicker and more challenging. We've seen that with COVID-19 and how quick we've all had to change and adapt uh, as a business. Sonia?
0: um what, what are your reflections on what you've heard or uh, ab- about the role of the cfo um when you play that into your experience across the housing sector do you find the cfo's front and center of, of the transformation agenda
1: um so i would say to some to some extent i would say quite often actually um in fact, more often, perhaps it's driven from kind of an operational imperative. So it, it is often the business which is looking for improvements in terms of the ways that we work. Um, but generally, with with strong support from the CFO, um, and but I do think that increasingly, so um, quite often, if you look at how housing, how how organisations are structured, is that you will see. Um, that um, the CFO is often the role which is responsible for technology within the organisation. So, you know, there's a really close link there. Um, And, and you know, any CFO worth their salt, essentially, is going to be looking for efficiencies. And there's no doubt that it's, you know, it's a rich vein for us in the housing sector because we we have not moved sufficiently into the digital space that there is a, I think there's a general acceptance that actually can bring uh, benefit to, to organisations. So I don't see, but I'm also conscious as well that CFOs are also concerned with um, the requirements in terms of uh, meeting the needs of our regulator uh, understand. I think the risk appetite from the board is a really important one, I think, which James has picked up on um, because there, there is a degree of risk involved in embarking uh, around the digital piece because it does require significant investment. And often for us in the sector, it requires skills within the organisation that inherently we may not have.
0: Thanks for that. Uh, James, thank you very much. We'll move on now to our second witness. Angela Lockwood has been leading North Star Homes for the last ten years. Angela, by far the most pr- common procurement approach in housing is a big specification, big procurement, big bang implementation approach. Does it work?
4: Well, thank you, John. Um, There's a big statement. Um, in, in, in one word, no. Um, I don't think it works. Um, I think you know, digitising operations has to be for a purpose. And you have to get the purpose right. Um, it must solve the problem, not just for the sake of it. Or you get transformation failure. And I often think in organisations, um, something isn't working in the organisation and people find the wrong solution to the problem, um, which means it's uh, set up to fail from day one. So, you know, nailing the purpose is always important. And of course, there are many purposes, you know, improving customer experience, you know, dealing with the mundane, and I, I would argue digitization is no longer an option, it's essential. Um, but this transformation, this, this, this big transformation that's required in the sector, can be done through one single step, which is the Big Bang approach, or through inc- incremental evolutionary steps. Um, and the implications in my experience, and I've been in the sector an awful long time, John, too long to be able to count are often very different. And I head up an organization myself. And I think there's something interesting about our sector. And and isn't it someone said that, you know, if you do the same things in the same way and you get the same results, you know, you're kind of mad. And the sector does that for some ridiculous reason. Um, But I think in our sector, we have, for whatever reason, a strong desire to transform businesses radically in one single step. There's there's just this driver that seems to be around the sector Um, and I think we would easily argue that we need to realise the benefits of a future vision as quickly as possible, minimising the pain, disruption and duration of the change process and I think you know in many ways that ambition is is valid. However, However, I think we're often in denial about our Ability to handle radical one-step change effectively and more often than not we get it wrong and we create major disruption In my experience large-scale transformation really works and the wonderful John Cotter um, Leader of Harvard Business School reckons 70% of big transformations fail And nearly 20% take the organization down with it. So that's pretty big risk and yet we yet we take it Um, I mean, John Cotter argues that wholesale change can only be effectively made in measured steps and not um, in a big bang way that the sector favours. I think as well, if I'm being entirely honest, our reliance on consultants is quite significant. And I think we're oversold big bang uh, by consultants because we haven't got the expertise in-house. I think we also react when things are going wrong and we make decisions under duress and they're not always good decisions. And I think as humans... We have a tendency to be overly optimistic about our own performance, um, which is fascinating as well in terms of anthropology, I guess. Um, so, And I know incremental change isn't popular. It appears slow, complex, expensive. It dilutes the benefits. And yeah, I think you have to be very brave to opt for this in a world that's addicted to pace. But, but it has huge advantages. I mean, apart from anything else, it's the natural way that things happen in the natural world. I mean, things evolve. They don't just pop into existence. Um, it's easy to change course as well when you do an incremental change with minimal cost and disruption. It fits with progressive and emerging business models, which are dynamic, the fluid, you know, and we're working in an environment that's difficult to predict. Honestly, I, I, I can do a business plan in January and by July, it doesn't fit the environment or context anymore. So why would a long big bang transformation project fit the environment 12 months after you've started it? And I don't know what the rush is. What is the hurry? More collaboration, better thinking takes people with you and that equals success. Um, it has to be embedded and you have to test it and you have to learn for the next phase. So so we need rational, not emotional decision making. We need strong leadership. So what do I think? The sector needs to review its big bang approach as it just doesn't work.
2: Angela, the, the, um, there's something incredibly ironic about the idea that um, the, sec- the sector is risk averse. Uh, and you're talking in very, very positive terms about... The benefits of an incremental approach, Uh, and you know, we could get into a debate about the difference between incremental disruption and and disruption, um, but we won't do that. Um, So it's ironic that you're talking about these things and you're suggesting that the sector favours incremental improvements because it's risk averse, but it procures through big bang. Why is that?
4: I think it's something interesting uh, because I think we um, the sector applies old solutions to new problems i think nick i think um, as a leader don't you don't you rely on what you've learned in the past and yet apply it to the problem that you're faced with as opposed to putting it to one side learning differently and being more progressive I i think the sector's got an abundance of people who um settle for old solutions for new problems because um of a number of reasons i mean i think we are I think the skills within the organisation are not necessarily there. I'm not sure that the sector looks um, externally enough and connects with the commercial world enough. I think we're a bit overly insular. And I think we like to stick with what we know, despite the fact that we can research it and find problems and flaws with it. It's what we know. And I think we stick with what we know.
2: So that that's, um, that's an interesting viewpoint. So I, I, I think... What you might consider is that many of the most successful innovative brands uh, that we're familiar with now in terms of technology brands enter their market as digital first disruptors. So they come in and they challenge with new business models that are enabled by technology. Uh, They create completely new and better customer uh, experiences, delivering more value to customers. How innovative or ambitious is the digital transformation work that's being done within the sector? how how innovative do you think it is Uh, and what do you think a disruptive entrant into the housing sector might look like how might they behave um and and how would they challenge an incumbent
4: yeah i think the sector is caught i think gets gets there's a tension in the sector uh between um relationships and digitization um we, we are deeply relational as a sector because it's the business that we do um, and we are very, very used to face-to-face contact, face-to-face services and delivering to highly vulnerable people. And I think that's in our DNA and it's been around since Victorian times. So there's a, there's a massive embedding of culture around our desire and need to communicate and to deliver services in a face-to-face way. I think, I think that's a hurdle that we have to overcome. And many of us have grown up in the sector. Many of us have grown up in that way. Most chief executives in the sector have come up through the ranks. It's very, very unusual for the sector to appoint somebody not from the sector as the chief exec. So we've got we've got to get over um, that kind of embedded culture and embedded way of thinking. That's not to say it's not around. We've got some phenomenal examples where organisations have really stepped into the digital world and done some amazing stuff. And, and there's a realisation in the sector amongst chief execs, which I'm one of them, Um, that the digital world is is not optional. You know, this is not an Mm. option any longer for a whole variety of reasons. But for some reason, we're scared of it. And also, we're scared of the investment we think it's a lot of money and now i know that it's not always a lot of money in any way shape or form i know some of the fixes that we've had in our organisations some of the digitisations cost us very little to be frank with you but there's a perception out there that this is highly skilled highly technical highly expensive highly risky and so we'll just leave it for another couple of years until we can we can settle a bit so so what needs to happen is in terms of disruption i think i think the main disruption would come from People who come from the external world and make us do it, like our res- like our customers who demand it, command it, where performance dips and you've got no choice because your back's against the wall and you've got to do something different. Where the regulator insists upon it, you know, e- even if the chief exec is, is not completely um, committed to it, if the external environment and external drivers are such that they have to do it, then they'll have to do it. So it's a bit of both, I think, a bit of design, a bit of essential prodding.
2: And do you think there's an issue with um, alignment around the definition? I mean, simple questions, right? So do you think there's an issue with alignment around the definition of digital within housing associations or within other organizations, um, you know, that are slow to transform? Uh, I I, I think, you know, we often... uh, See an issue when we come across organisations around this, and and uh, we see everybody having a different definition. So depending on the type of company that you know or the, or the transformation they're trying to undergo, so some people might say, "Oh, trans- uh, digital—that's what the IT guys used to do." It, it's it's just a different version of it. Um, someone might define digital in in marketing terms. Others might talk about customer experience or omnichannel experience, and, and on and on it goes. And that's fine at one level. Um, but when you translate that into the boardroom, you end up with complete misalignment and people pulling in different directions. Um, do you think that's an issue within housing associations?
4: Well, Nick, we can't even agree whether we have residents, tenants or customers. So what is the chance, <laughs> what is the t- chance of us getting the digital message right? You know, it just is not going to happen. It's a really good point you make because mm. digitization, digitalization on its own just Confounds people. It all. It, for me, it's these are just words. It has to come back to the purpose. What is it we want to deliver in terms of services, internally and externally as an organisation? Forget forget the digital technolo- technological um, vernacular. Forget all of that. What is it this organisation needs to be doing in the future to deliver great services? That's where we we went to in our organisation. We swept it away. We swept away the fear of the words, and we swept away the fear of um, needing to be technological, and we brought it all the way back to people and purpose. And when you bring it all the way back to people and purpose, do you know what? Funnily enough, people get it.
2: Yeah, and and that's interesting too. So, you know, I talked at the start about the importance of leading, and I think you know, unless there is that alignment at at executive level about what we mean when we talk about transformation, I I think it's difficult for the executive team to articulate that in a way across the organization that everybody can rally around. Um, And and to your earlier point, I think um, that that's the way that we go about de-risking the process and that we uh, find ourselves able to digitize the business in, I think of it in waves. Uh, and to James's point starting in smaller places and building out. So it sounds to me like there is a real issue I think what you're saying is that there is a real issue is around digital leadership within the organization
4: Yeah, it. yeah, it's a sector issue
0: Yeah, I, so I just want to An- Angela could you just reflect for us if you would Sonia touched on a point earlier about um, change topping out at operations um, and I think that uh experience that we've had at Campbell to Cal of that is is perhaps that um, People seek to wrap a digital skin around an old-fashioned business Um, because Digital offers a lot to customers uh, But if you want to reap the rewards within the business, you've got to completely reorganize how you run the business Um, And and the business moves to a very different rhythm um, But it has a much lower cost to serve so I just wonder what reflections you've got on on the risk of opera of digital transformation topping out at operations, because again, I guess the other aspect that we see of that is that it's the director of operations who's very clearly motivated towards it, but that sometimes implies that the CFO and the chief exec and the board are looking sideways at it rather than leading it.
4: Um, I think it's. I think it's it's a critical and crucial issue john in organizations generally who want to do transformation as soon as the chief exit and the board think it's somebody else's job to do it we're in trouble we're in big trouble um and if that happens in an organization i would suggest the whole thing just has to stop um because what you absolutely need is the chief exit and the board's commitment to it and it's not somebody else's job to do and when i've been in big organizations where that's happened. I mean, I find it really amusing that some people create jobs for like head of innovation. Isn't it all about jobs to be innovative? I mean, I find it fascinating. It's almost like it's somebody else's job to do. Um, when it's not, this is cultural embedding of the purpose of the business. And if the chief executive and the board are not wanting to drive a digital agenda, it will be half-hearted and it'll be half-done and it'll be half-baked. That is, that is, and it'll be expensive. And um, I've worked with consultants before on cultural change, actually, not too dissimilar, whereby they have absolutely said to my organisation, if the chief executive and the board are not up for this, let's just not do it. And I think that's a brave decision. Uh, but I, all too often I do see in organisations chief execs passing it down to somebody else who, A, you know, hasn't really got the authority to drive it through, often often hasn't got the authority and definitely hasn't got the commitment. I mean, it's just wrong at every level. If the chief exec doesn't want to do it, chief exec has to say they don't want to do it. And if the board want to do it, and the chief exec doesn't, then the chief exec has to leave.
0: Thanks for that. Um, Nick, question for you. Um, we've... Uh... We've touched upon the fact that, that there is an alternative way to the Big Bang approach. Um, but we've also touched on the fact that, that the sector as a whole is very comfortable and familiar with the Big Bang approach. So just describe in a, 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 outline what a, a different approach, a more agile approach looks like.
2: So I, I think this goes fundamentally to the idea of are you doing digital or are you going digital? Uh, the, the title of the episode I, I think you know doing digital is uh, is about it, it, I think Angela talked about digitization of a service so that in itself is not digital transformation it's taking one aspect of the business and provide using some technology to find some efficiency savings and deliver a slightly improved customer service in in perhaps one area um, and and I think you know that kind of piecemeal, uh, if I can say that, digitization of services, uh, you know, isn't the wholesale transformation uh, that we need. And and by wholesale transformation, what I'm saying is that what we need doing is reorganizing our business, our entire business, around the customer journey. So what we do is fundamentally... um, you know, place the customer experience, the customer journey as the organizing principle for the business. And then rather than trying to run um, in improvement initiatives within individual silos, we use that, we, we take a, a completely holistic view of the customer journey and think about how do we reimagine that. Um, and we bring people out of individual departments or, or individual silos within the business to look at that together. And I think. What that then leads us to is uh, a a way of understanding where we can add value to customers at different stages in that journey and and different ways of working, which are inherently more agile and which enable us to um, test ideas and hypotheses for how we can improve that experience quickly, uh, more cost-effectively, more cheaply, uh, and as as I said earlier, I think, you know, a contemporary forward thinking CFO, chief executive and board looking at that and saying, OK, um, what are we going to be testing here? What are we going to be learning? Um, where should we be investing money to improve the customer experience uh, and to find operational uh, improvements at the same time? But ultimately, it's driven by the customer experience uh, as the organizing principle for the organization. Uh, and I think, you know. That, that's how you get there, and I, I think achieving incremental improvements or one or two parts uh, of the customer journey uh, is great. Uh, you know, and and we might find some improvements in certain areas, but I think uh, what we should be looking for is how do we how do we improve that customer experience across the piece, from, from the beginning of the journey to the end, and how do we organize our business around doing that.
1: A lot of discussion about um, transformation and digital as though the two are kind of entirely interchangeable. Um, and I think, you know, there's very clearly a link there. But I feel like I need to um, spring to the defence a little bit of the sector, because actually transformation is something which I think is, is actually within our DNA. Um, and, you know, when Nick was talking about that customer journey, that is something that feels very familiar. Um, and I think increasingly, probably over the last decade, actually, is that organisations have invested significant resources actually in business improvement, and we've started to look at that customer journey. And in some ways, transformation. When we talk about it, we the focus tends to be a lot on digital, but actually, for a lot of organisations, transformation it is it is culture, it is business process, it is that agile way of working about breaking down the silos you know we have a long heritage of silo working between operations and assets uh, and increasingly we're, we're more aware of that And we've been doing a lot of work following that customer journey identifying the the stuff that we do that adds no value but actually delivers waste and trying to cut some of that out where we've been less good i think is then matching that to the digital piece in terms of how we can deliver some of those improvements And for me, some of that is is that we have been wedded, as you say, to those big bang, whole scale management systems for both property and for for housing management. So so Angela, I'm really interested in terms of the smaller incremental uh, stuff. I think think John had put it previously about um, taking something that you have and enriching it. And we're seeing much more organisations looking at CRM systems and not just them pushing and pulling data from our traditional systems, but actually developing those to get them to a point of minimal viable product and then starting to enrich them to deliver some of the gains that we want. So what, I'm interested in your experience of that.
4: Yeah, my experience is not, it's not entirely a good experience in the sector in that, in the organisations that I've worked in, and I've worked in big nationals. Um, I've found is that um, we're data rich and analysis poor um, in organisations and I've never ever experienced a really good CRM system doing what the organisation wants it to do and delivering what it wants to deliver and what I experience in that in that sense is that people give up on it or they find workarounds um, or they use little bits of it you know we're not very good it using the entire system and sticking with the system to get it working for us as opposed to dumping it and finding another solution. There's something in our DNA that that means that we um, I don't know if we've just given permission to do that in organisations. So I remember in my organisation we did a kind of a, um, an audit of every Blumann system that we had in the business, and I mean there were systems there that I've never even heard of. Um, I had no idea what they were there for, neither did anybody else. Interestingly, um, you know, this, so there is something about um, keeping it simple, sticking with it, making sure it is what you wanted to be and that you have control over the outcomes of it and that you value the outcomes and not letting people do workarounds sticking with it and making sure it does what it needs to do and i think that the the sector could be better at that i think i think we let it go too quick that's my experience of the organizations i've worked in there will be some fantastic ones who do it amazingly well but my, my experience is not good
0: and james your reflections on what you're hearing
3: so, so a couple of things just to, to pick up that Angela was talking about earlier about how important it is within her business that it's face to face contact. That's exactly the same that we have within uh, North Marine Insurance. Uh, we, we have a lot of people travelling around the world. or Had a lot of people travelling around the world to meet with our members to do business with them uh, on a, on a regular basis. And actually, I suppose what COVID has proved is actually we can change. Um, the the whole business has gone from. We need to be going to meet with our members. We need to be going to communicate with them face to face and dealing with them to actually now, actually it's now acceptable and expected that we're doing this over video conference instead. So I suppose what I'm trying to highlight here is is just this this change in COVID has, has had a monumental impact from that point of view uh, on our business. And actually, we as a business have adopted very well to that as an industry, I think we've adopted very well. And I'm sure there's a number of other industries that have adopted uh, adapted very well to this uh, forced change that we're having to work through. But you go back a year and you say, right, we're gonna stop traveling and we're not gonna do any face-to-face business and we're gonna do it all over video conference. People would not not been able to accept that.
1: So, so Angela, I think um, one of the interesting things about Covid has been it's really exposed our weakness in terms of data. Um, so we all know that one of the hardest questions to answer in in the housing context is how many properties do you own? uh, Because it depends on who you ask and which system they take the data from. But at a time when, you know, we have to be so much more focused on performance and we're seeing big changes in the business in terms of, you know, the number of work in progress that we have and our, um, the change in arrears, the number of our customers in receipt of universal credit. I think it, we've come to realise that actually the data we hold on our customers is, is incredibly poor and it's really hampered our ability to, um, to, to respond to customers and to COVID. In an effective, in an effective way, you know, we found workarounds for it, but it has been a big exposure for us. What do you think? Where do you think we are in terms of data as, as a sector, Angela? Are we doing enough?
4: Um, I I agree um, entirely with you, Sonia. I mean, data is a big issue in the sector. We've never really got to grips with data, and um, it, we were exposed during COVID. And what we had to do was um, rely on personal. Um, relationships and understanding uh, of the people who live in our communities which to be fair worked but you know it wasn't as efficient and effective as a a good data uh, source would have been and it certainly made my organization sit up and uh, think come on, you know, what? Can, what is the core data we require um, if this organisation going forward? Because actually we haven't got the core data that enables us to be as efficient and effective as we need to be. So, and that's not just my organisation's problem, Sonia. You've hit on the sector issue. And I I think data is king going forward. I mean, I would say the kids coming out of school, go into data because do you know what? You're going to be employed for the next 20 years without a shadow of a doubt because we need you.
1: And James, then, thinking about that from a commercial perspective do you know, hearing us talk about um, the the sector's uh, inability to understand its customer because we just don't have the data. Does does that surprise you from a commercial? Because I suspect data is king in commercial organisations.
3: Well, does it surprise me? I'll be brutally honest. No, because we have everybody has the same challenges. Uh, Even in the commercial world, I think maybe we have a, a better understanding of our data and have a better view of our customer. But I think we, as a business could, and all businesses, I think could probably always do better uh, and get a better understanding of data. I heard a really interesting analogy recently about how to describe data. And I used this actually when I was talking to the board recently. Um, The data is now no longer the oil of the business. It's actually nuclear. Get it right and it does the business, the world of good, but get it wrong and it makes a load of damage. I do think that all businesses could do better data. I've never ever worked in a business, having worked in a number that have ever said, we've got good data, good control of it. We know everything. We know, we know all of our houses in your instance, or we know all of our properties and everything else. There's always there's always an improvement there. There's always an opportunity to improve data.
0: And indeed, it's been the case in the housing sector that, um, uh, the sector rested on its lo- has rested on its laurels for some for, for long periods about data. Um, we'll all remember that probably the last eight years have been characterised by lots of downgrades that are, uh, originate in poor quality data. Um, it's all very well reporting one hundred percent gas safety compliance, um, but that's rather undermined if you've got fifteen properties that aren't on your database. Um, so we've all had experience of those issues. Thanks for that point. I
2: mean, on, on data, uh, I would, I, I, it's an interesting one. I've seen everything from organisations with so much data. They, they all, you know, it's almost analysis. They don't know where to turn. it. Um, I've seen other organisations that have got loads of data but just aren't doing anything with it. I've seen organisations with no data at all that need to start gathering it and everything in between. I, 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 the simple question I think people need to ask is, um, if What would people do with perfect data if they managed to get it? What would you do with it? How would you use it?
3: I'm not sure you'd ever have perfect data. Um, and if you, I think what you need to do is there's always going to be a balance of having uh, the, the right level of data to make those right business decisions. What you need is you need good quality data to be confident in the decisions that you make based on the data that, you've, that you have available. Um, coming back, John, to your point around... Uh, gas safety, safety checks, you know, that is a, it's a legal mandatory requirement to have, so it needs to be absolutely 100% perfect. And we need to focus on the right areas for data, but the really important uh, mandatory or legal requirements, they need to be in really, really good shape. Some of the other areas maybe don't need quite so much focus.
0: Yes, and indeed, the, the organisations that reported 100% compliance often believe that they... Yeah their their data was right um and indeed they might have had their internal audit function um check their processes relating to gas compliance but they hadn't gone beneath that to the layer that says our property is being added and deleted how are we assured that all of our properties are on the database Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, and i think it goes beyond um assurance actually in terms of um data and how we potentially use it. So I think, I think you know, we, we talk a lot, I think, about this rule of 80-20 in terms of where we spend our resources between those, those customers who, who, who want a home, who come and pay their rent and they, you know, become part of their communities. And then those customers who have, um, who have more needs and where we need to target more resources. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff around kind of predictive analytics. And actually, if we knew our customers well enough, and we could identify um, where we've had tenancy failures, where we haven't, where we haven't managed to support our customers to sustain their tenancies. You know, are there key indicators or are there things that they have in common that data can tell us so that actually we can start to identify those those people early in their tenancy so that we can target an effective level of, res- of resource at the right point? Um, in their kind of customer journey to make sure that those tenancies don't fail. And I think that's the real opportunity for us in terms of data. Um, yes, there's a big piece around assurance. And, you know, we, you know one of, we've been a lot of stuff about um, equalities and Black Lives Matter and absolutely right. But actually it's another area for us where I think we're really poor because we don't know our customers. We, I think we, uh, we struggle hand on heart to say that we are confident That we are not making, that there's no unconscious bias in the way that we let our homes or the decisions that we make, because we don't have strong enough data to test that premise.
4: I I agree, Sonia, with you that data is important and we need it. We We need it to demonstrate things and we need it to focus our attention on things. But honestly, if I went into one of my housing, if I went into the housing team tomorrow and said to the housing team who were working on the front line and out on the patch all, all of the time, um, what's why is that tenancy failing year after year? You'd get the answer immediately. It wouldn't come from data; it would come from knowledge and understanding of the patch and the people and the human relations. And so, for me, I, I'm, I'm I'm always careful about getting the balance of data and then intelligence because do you know what? too much data is not good and too much intelligence is not good but the two in uh, balance together can be absolutely perfect so that would be my that would be my perfect end result not perfect data but a good balance of data and a good balance of intelligence you know what you can't go past it
0: that's great thank you let's finish off by trying to take some positives from the current challenging times we'll go around the panel and the witnesses to answer this question what lessons have we learned from covid-19 that we can usefully apply to accelerate the sector's rate of digital transformation. One per person, please. And first we'll have Sonia.
1: Um, So I think we have learnt the folly of dragging our colleagues 50, 60 miles from office to office to have meetings. Um, And uh, and I think we were starting to look at um, our space and how we communicate with each other, uh, but also starting to think about, you know, um, innovation and collaboration and actually has that been hampered in the digital space or has that been enhanced in the digital space so we we've, we've all i think we've all moved we've all had agile working policies and certainly within a 3 month period we probably moved more than we would have done in 5 years so necessity is the mother of invention and it certainly has helped us to embrace the technology in terms of teams and zooms and you know other products are also available um, but I think it has got us thinking about about how we're working. But also on the converse side, I think from a customer perspective, um, I think it's got us really valuing some of that hands-on stuff that we do. So if we think back to the space around the welfare um, work that we did, we started to do that in a digital space as well. And actually, what that has done is it's got our customers more used to engaging with us in the digital space. Um, on some of those more personal issues, the things that feel very relational, actually we've managed to do digitally. And we've managed to do more of it because it's been a more cost-effective and less resource-intensive to do it.
3: Thank you. James? Uh, I think what the COVID-19 has proved to us is actually you can do it. We can, change is difficult, it is really hard, but actually I think what we have seen from the last, six six or so months is change is all around us. It's gonna to continue to happen uh, over the coming years uh, and, but technology is there to help us and we need to continue to utilize technology to help enable and support that change. Thanks. Angela?
4: I've learned stacks about myself, um, including the organization. Um, uh, so, the, but the biggest thing I've learned um, is that context is everything. So when the context changes and shifts, different things happen, interesting things happen. And um, so the context was very, very different during COVID and required something very, very different from us. And what I learned was as human beings, we can respond to that, but it needed the context to enable that to happen. So, So the big conundrum and puzzle that I have is how do I keep how do I keep the accelerated change going in the amazing um, technological changes that we've implemented in my organisation when I don't have that context? Um, and linked to that, I've also learned a very interesting lesson that not all enforced change is bad.
0: Indeed so, thank you for that. And finally, Nick.
2: I think as Angela suggested, um, businesses have learned that it is possible to use technology to change the way you work very quickly Um, during these digital housing based podcasts we've heard how at the outset of the pandemic some people completed digitization initiatives in a few months that that, that they were planning to roll out over several years um, so they could keep their businesses functioning I I think post pandemic um, the housing sector will take what it's learned about the importance of agile working uh, and apply that to achieve organisation-wide change and ultimately build leaner, more agile, uh, digital by default businesses.
0: Thanks very much for that. I think I'd just, in a way, echo what, what Angela said. I think that at the start of the uh, uh, of lockdown, um, organisations decided what was important and they started small and they built out a, a richer service offer. Um, having decided what was important and started small. Um, and, and that, in a way, is uh, is the model that we've been talking about. Yep. And so we've seen it applied successfully during COVID. Um, and pretty much every executive team and board that I talk to, they're wondering how they preserve those lessons that they've learned, those positive lessons, as the old ways reassert themselves. And I And I just say, look to the model that worked for you in COVID, you learnt a huge amount about the resilience of your staff and the resilience of your customers um, and uh, you can build out from there. Nick, reflecting on what you've heard, we've talked a lot about culture, how might an organisation mitigate the risk of an unhelpful culture obstructing new ways of doing things?
2: Thanks John, Uh, that's a good question Uh, and I think the the simple answer is it's not easy. Um, ING's digital transformation offers an interesting case study on this Uh, when they started to make the shift to agile ways of working back in 2015 they recognized that culture is perhaps the most important part of any transformation effort. Um, ultimately without the right people and culture transformation is likely to fail Uh, Bart Schlappmann who was then COO has has talked at length in interviews about how much energy uh, and leadership time ING put into trying to role model uh, the sorts of behaviours, so ownership, empowerment, customer centricity, that are necessary in an agile culture. Um, In fact, ING decided this was so important that they put all of their employees at headquarters on what they call mobility, Um, which effectively meant that they were without a job and they and they asked everybody to reapply for a position in the new organization Uh, they then went through a really intense selection process um, and they had a higher weighting for culture and mindset than knowledge or experience Uh, um, at the end of the process I I think he says they had around 40% of the people who were in a different role to the one they had previously and they also lost a lot of people who had great knowledge, but they just lacked the right mindset. So they weren't a good fit for the culture. Um, uh, I've also seen examples of organizations adopting a peer-to-peer hiring approach, so similar to the one used at Google, um, uh, to ensure that new team members fit the culture and mindset of the business. Um, and as I've talked about previously, I think creating agile multidisciplinary teams that are able to operate across silos, ensures people are united around a common purpose and that they're able to constantly reshape what they do um, within within certain parameters to to move the organization towards its objectives. So yeah, I guess you could say, um, I guess the answer to the question I would give is that the best mitigation strategy is both a clear vision for the kind of culture the organization needs uh, and then uh, inevitably, I suppose, strong leadership to create that culture.
0: Thank you for those thoughts. It only remains me f- for me to thank our panellists, Sonia Fursland and Nick Salloway, and our witnesses, James Holmes and Angela Lockwood. We hope you've enjoyed this exploration of the digital housing maze and that we've left you motivated and equipped to progress digital transformation within your organisation. It's easy to track down both Curious and campbell Kelly if you need a helping hand, and in the meanwhile, goodbye.